As usual, we speak about somebody's yard site who's coming next month. Um, the person we want to speak about is the Radvaz, um, as opposed to the Ridvaz, the people confused the two. They were both the Rav of Tzfas, about 300 year difference. The Ridvaz is, he died in the turn of last century. Um, the Radvaz lived in the 14 and 1500s, two very, very different people. And they both ended up in Sfas, and people mix them up. The Radvaz is the one we're going to speak about. Um, like always, we'll mention where, where we get the information, where, where do I have this information from. So, the Radvaz himself left over about 10,000 chuvas, of which we have printed at two and a half thousand. Um, in his chuvis, there's a wealth of information, a personal um, context of, of the people and times. Um, there's a little bit contemporaries like the Mabit or the Beisosif, there's mention, um, but really there's very little other information. And uh, somebody did write a history of him, but basically it's, it's, it, it's taking all the bits and pieces from the Chuvas farm and putting together and making something out of it. That's mostly, that's come out what we have. Um, very, very little other than that. And like I said, he's mentioned uh, Mabir has a Chuva without a name that's about somebody without a, it doesn't mention a name, but it appears to be. He's talking about him. And Bezos also mentions him and so on. So, so basically, that's where we know it. But there's quite a lot and quite a very fascinating life. Um, he was born in Spain in 1479, which means he was still before the, the Golos Farad. Um, he learned under somebody named Rabiesi Sargassi, who ended up also leaving Spain like everybody else. And at the age of about 13 or so, he was exiled from Spain with everybody else. They, they know the stops that he made, but they don't have a clear idea of the years. He made stops in um, Fez, Morocco, um, Cairo, Yerushalayim, the um, Tzfas. Not clear how much time he spent anywhere, but he ended up back in Egypt. That was where the main part of his life was spent. Um, he started out being a Rav in Alexandria and then became the head of the, of the, he moved to Cairo, he became the Chachambashi, or the head of the uh, Egyptian Rabbonim. Forty years he was the Rav and the Posek of Egypt, and then he moved to Yisrael. He moved first to Yishalayim, and then, for a few reasons, moved to Tzfas. And that's where he was Nifta. And the age that it was lived is not 100% clear. It ranges from 95 years to 110 years. And depending on, again, you try to reconcile different svarim, but more or less, he definitely lived an old age, at ripe old age, and that's where he was. He, um, he left over, so he had yeshiva, besides being the Rosh Yeshiva, besides being the Rav, in Egypt, he also um, had a yeshiva there. The um, the person who 
who supported it, and it was a very big force in Egypt, was named Rabbi Yitzhak Shalal. There's a street named Pimir Shalayim. He was a, the Nugget. Nugget was the, the head of Egyptian Jewry. It was a government uh, position of sorts. He was a wealthy man, Rabbi Yitzhak Shalal, and he supported the yeshiva and so on. He had a yeshiva there. His two most noted Talmidim are the Shita Mukubetzis, Rabbi Tzal Ashkenazi. The Rabbi Tzal Ashkenazi brings him down every once in a while in his Shita Mukubetzis. He quotes Chidush Torah from him. And the Rizal, they both learned by the Radvaz. Okay, it's hard to find the Cheshva group of Talmidim, uh, uh, those that we know. And um, he put out, he, he wrote a tremendous amount of Chuvas. Like we said, they estimate there's 10,000 chuvas from him extant, or were extant, of which we have printed 2,500. He wrote um, a peerage on the Rambam in different places that the Magdalene is not there. You'll have the Radvaz over there. If you take a look in some parts of Rambam, there's a Radvaz over there. Um, he wrote Sfarim um, in Kabbalah. He wrote a Sefer on... Um, I think it's called Mitzudus David on Shir Shirim, a Pirish Alderach Kabbalah. He wrote something called Mogin David on all the Oasis, the Aleph base, the meaning of the Kabbalah. And he wrote a whole bunch of others for him. Um, but the most famous things that we have from him are the Chuvas and the parts on the Rama. Those, that's really the most famous parts. I want to sketch out, first of all, a little bit about the Tkufa. Um, the different problems that they had, that they had different places, and then we'll, 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 we'll look at some of the chuvas and very fascinating in Yanim. So, he, he ended up in Mitzrayim, in Egypt. In general, the world at that time, the Ottoman Empire was beginning to um, become the dominant force in the world. It was a, a miracle because that's why the Jews could go to all these countries. Spain had thrown them out. Spain and Portugal threw the Jews out. That, that's where you had the strongest Jewish colonies. And if the Ottoman Empire hadn't been so um, widespread and so powerful, and it was Muslim, and they were interested in having Jews, we would have had a really tough time of finding places of refuge. Lamaisa, Turkey itself, um, Egypt, Israel and Israel served as places of refuge, it was thanks to the fact that the Ottoman Empire was the dominant power. That's one historical Nakuda. Egypt, Cairo, and Alexandria were very large Jewish communities. There was a problem brewing because the, there had been a Spanish, there had been Egyptian Jewry for a long time. They had the Minhagim. Many of them came from the Rambam. Those Minhagim were frozen in time. And all of a sudden you had an influx of Sephardi Jews. Sephardi Jews meaning from Spain. I mean, technically, today we would call the, the Egyptians all Sephardi, but from Spain, a massive influx. You had Jews coming from Western Africa, the Maghreb, which is like Algeria, Morocco, there were Xeris there, they, they ended up there. You had um, people coming from um, Greek and Italian different cities. So you had all of a sudden a community 
that had been very, very um, insulated, kind of a homogenous, better word for it, homogenous with them and hug and everything, all of a sudden were, they had this influx of a huge, many different other kahilas. What happens? Are they all supposed to become battle to the to local kahila? Do they retain their own minhagim, which were different? And there was a lot of friction on that. So Radvaz was instrumental in dealing with those issues. And we'll see some of the psakim that, that deal with these issues. There was also politics in the term, in, in, in the sense that Egypt had been ruled by a Mameluk caste, which was a kind of a, a caste of semi-slaves, um, and the Ottoman Empire took it over, but it still retained some of its, uh, it was like autonomous to some degree. The local ruler um, wanted to rebel against the Ottoman Empire. He tried to get Rabbanim on his side. They were very hesitant, so he cracked down on them and was very mean to them. And then the, somebody told the Ottoman Empire about what's going on, and they arrested him. It was, it was very, there was always a lot of issues. The, the Jews were caught many times between a rock and a hard place. Do you, do you side with your local guy, who has immediate power over you, or at some point he's going to run in trouble with the big people in Turkey, and then you have a lot more problems? Those, those were issues. Yerushalayim had a very... So, so he was there 40 years throughout Vaz. He then moved on to Yerushalayim. Um, it's not clear any specific reason why, but Radvaz himself writes in a tshuva about living in Egypt, that the Issa to live in Egypt is only if you live permanently, but if you're there only to move on, you're allowed to. So he moved on to Yerushalayim. He was a wealthy man, the Radvaz, on his own. He had businesses. He didn't need to be supported by the killer. Yerushalayim asked him to become their Rav. He was very wary of it for a lot of reasons, and he made a condition that he he would um, he would become their rav on condition that he gets paid no salary, he doesn't have an official position. The only thing he asked from them is that if he gets in trouble because of them, they should pay the bills. That was the only condition he made. So he was he was the the paisik there for a few years. He then passed against a very wealthy and, and tough family. They went and told the, the local pasha, the local ruler, that this rabbi here is praving rabistva. He didn't register with you, which was it's only minimal courtesy that the local rabbi should do. And basically, you really need to be tough with this guy. So he had him arrested, the Ratvas. And he was very nasty, and Radvaz denied. He said, I don't get a salary, I'm not official. People come to me as a I answered him, but that's it. He told him, you're a liar. Especially, he found out that Radvaz is a wealthy man. So he especially um, was, you know, extorted him. And it was only with a lot of with money that he got out. And he went away to Sfas. He then requested the community that they pay his bills. That was the agreement. He's not taking salary, but if he gets into trouble with the government, which is what happened, they should pay whatever to Gadin. They, they did not want to, and the Mabit has a truth about it. He doesn't mention Advaz by name, but it's pretty clear. I mean, that's, he, he describes the case exactly as is. 
Um, in Tzfas and Yerushalayim, there was a lot of rivalry in those days between the two communities. Um, Yerushalayim felt that they deserved prominence as Yerushalayim. There were problems with Yerushalayim. Living was very expensive, the, gov- the, the governor was nasty and, and uh, unbearable. So there was a lot, a lot of bigger yishuv in Tzfas, and there was some tension between two cities. The Radvaz lived out in Sfas as recovered until he was Nifta. I want to go back to his Tkufa in, in Egypt, which is his main Tkufa, and go through some of the, of the Psakim, some of the Yonim. The first thing we talked about was this was, this was a new era where a community that had been established, the norm was you had a community someplace uh, and, and people would come in they would have to join a community. This incredible flooding of a community with other communities, do they retain their identity or not? This was relevant in Yerushalayim. In Yerushalayim, they had a homogenous literature community and a homogenous Kiddush community, and all of a sudden, they had an influx of people after World War II or, or that, that Kufa who did not want to become but a local community. What's the halacha? What's the din over there? So the Radvaz writes that m- m- really, really, Barova Mahadis Melech, and everybody should join up and become one community. But since it's going to lead to fights and it's going to create problems, he said a person should dive in with a community he feels comfortable with, and therefore, um, since there's no real way to get everybody together and, and feel that way, then it is preferable they should dive in smaller shuls. He says it's Muhajas Melach. If they dive in smaller shuls where there's peace, then they dive in one big shul where they're fighting with each other. That's a Psakir Advaz. One. Two, there were Minhagim that had been instituted by the Rambam and stayed that way. And now people said, this is strange, this is weird, we, we don't do it this way. And the Radvaz was mevatel them. Two of those minhagim are, first of all, they used to count on a ksuba and I get, not from Bria Sa'olam the way we do, but they used to count from the Greek kings. Klal Yisrael had instituted a counting from the Malachim. This is, that's, that's that when you, in the Msef Rosh Hashanah, when you speak about counting for the Malchus, for the Melochim, when you count one year, two years, so on, it's because the, the counting on Ksubis and Gitten and, and Sharktush and so on was done based on the Greek kings. Um, the, it became butler after the Greeks became irrelevant, especially since the Romans wouldn't be so happy with it. Except in Egypt, the Rambam kept that minion. He was the, the, um I, I didn't find it true, but um, the, the Shem Agdolim, the Chidor, brings it that he was mevatel the minion Melochim, and he and he made it like everybody else, which is Bria Olam. That's if you have, you notice every Aksuba, it says the minion shanemoynin kan Baltimore, Maryland, or, or Silver Spring. The minion means different places had different systems of counting years. Um, today everyone counts Bria Olam, but the the, the the formula stayed in the Shtaris that we, when we write a date, we also write where this dating is used. There was one Takana Zvat Rambam. There was another Takana. 
the Rambam had a lot of Agmas Nefesh in his community. He saw that during Chazor Sashatz, people would schmooze around and, and just kind of, I don't know if they checked their smartphones, but they, but they definitely were hacking around. And he writes that this is an embarrassment for the Muslims who see it. And they say, oh, this is what Jews do. So the Rambam was mevatel shtilosh menesra. Everybody listened to the Chazan Dab. That was the meaning there. Um, it was an anomaly. It was the only place like that. And the Radvaz was mevatlit. He wrote that if there's going to be a lot of fighting because of it, he, he, he held, obviously, it, it, should, it, should go, it should be like everywhere else. He said, just not at the price of fighting. You know, fighting is not worth it. Baruch Hashem, it went to B'Shalom, and they became like everybody else. A, a lot of the pressure was because you had all of a sudden so many immigrants from different places, and they said, this is the strangest meaning we ever saw. It's not like the Gemara, it's not right, and, and that was part of the pressure to be mevatlit, and he, he felt it's right to be mevatlit. His, his stipulation was that they not be fighting because of it. He was very careful about it, many of his shuvas. And Baruch Hashem, it went through B'Shalom, and it was no problem. There were other issues. The people in the people there were superstitious, amaratzim, and there were certain things that were strange. Le Marshal, um, people felt that since certain problems are caused by shadim, so the, the best thing would be to worship the shadim a little bit. To offer them sacrifices, and people would offer sacrifices to shadim to keep them you know, calm and kind of a conciliatory mood and not do anything bad. And he writes, he can't believe that there are Bonim who let this pass by. It's real Avodah and so on. And he writes at the end of the tshuva, it's not that I don't believe in Shadim, but what you're doing is being over Avodah Zara. And that's, and that's incredible. So he, he writes very strongly against that. I, I assume he was Mevatlet. They also had, I'm not clear, it's hard to tell what it is, they had Goyesh dancers dancing at weddings in what appears to be not very sneistic way. I don't, I, I, it, hard to tell, I don't know, it mentions a term, hard to tell what it is exactly. He was bevatled that. He also, the Goyim, when they, when they would bury Jews in the, in the, in the grave, in the, in the Beis Akvaris, they would be attacked by Goyim. And what happened is people would just give over the body to a person to take care of it. This person supposedly would sneak some way, you know, or to the base Akvaris and get it done. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case a lot of times, and a lot of people were left with Zion. He instituted a Hever Kadisha system where you had a whole group of people and, and you know they defended it and so on. He was, you know, it was something that he instituted to bring back Kavra Mace the way it should be. Um, there was another strange minog that he writes very strongly against. If, if God forbid a woman died in childbirth, and it wasn't, it wasn't uncommon, unfortunately, and the, 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 um, the fetus would, would be already alive in the womb, but it would be alive. So medically, what could be done is you cut open the stomach and you take out the child, like you do a cesarean. And um, the, the quote-unquote minig was 
that the women would beat her stomach with sticks until the Uber would die. I don't know if that was a superstition. I don't know what it was. And he writes ferociously about it, you know, obviously, that this is akin to Nitzel Shama, it's not Ritzich HaMamish, and so on and so forth. He was a vatlet. It, it all seems to have been products of superstition, of just picking up from the local culture, and he fought very strongly against these things. He also, there are some chuvas of his that are a very, very important Bizman and that is um, Karoyim and Falashes. He, um, the, the question of are the Falashian Jews Jews? So he takes it as a given that they're from Shevet Don. And when this question arose in Bizman he actually, it, this becomes the, one of the most important psakim that we have defining them as Jews. It's hard, uh, you know, I mean, it's not 100% foolproof. We don't know which exactly Ethiopians and so on. But, he, but based on his tshuva, and Vavadi Yosef um, based his psakim on it, there, is, there are Jews who are in Ethiopia. They are his doxins, Ethiopians. They come from Shevet Don, and we consider them Jewish. The Karoim, the Karyat community, he also... There was also Shilas about that. Um, they, they were a large community. They were a strong community. And once in a while, you would, ha- you would have Karoim that would become what they call Rabbanim, that meaning um, they, they, they became f- from, they believe in Tosh Peh, but you had all sorts of issues about marrying with them. So he, Paskins, that if they accept on themselves, the, um, if they accept on themselves, you know, to follow Torah Shabbat we should accept them in our communities and make them part of communities. Uh, other Paiskim had a lot of issues with Kedushin and Gittin. Um, you know, they, they, the Kedushin is pretty much good Kedushin. Gittin is a problem, but Al Kaponim, he was Mate and Mekel, and again, that became, later on, a very strong smach. There are still Karayim around, there's tiny communities, but they live in Yisrael, and um, the defining the, the, the psak is uh, his psakim. Another area that's very interesting, he was a Makubal. So, two truths that are interesting. One is, he had a certain shayla that he passed away, and then he had a dream that he's, he's terribly wrong, and so on and so forth. And he writes that, and he had harata from his psak. But there's a second one that somebody fixed a Sefer Torah. We have a Mesorah's Harai Sefer Torah. The Zohar Kaddish has a different... Um, the Zohar Kaddish has some sort of drush on the Pasuk, where it sounds that like it's a Malay, and a Sofer wrote a Sefer Torah like that. And um, the... the um, and, and then when they tried to tell him to change or whatever, he said somebody else had tried to change it from the way the Zohar Kaddish writes, and he died in that year, and so on. So obviously the Zohar is right, and so on. He writes a very, very strong tshuva that nothing can override Bavli and Amasaurus. He says we can follow the Zohar Kaddish when it's a Chumrah, um, or when it's not mentioned in the Gemara, but you cannot use it 
to override something that's a clear halacha. And he was very strong about it, very adamant about it. Um, and that also becomes uh, a sort of bedrock psak against, uh, you know, using Kabbalah in any way to, to change the halacha in any way. This is a handful of, of some of his more fascinating psakim. Um, he writes in some place that not to be machmed too much because, you know, hopefully people keep halacha at least, you know, the dayenu that you should keep halacha, but let's not be over machmed. There are a lot of other very fascinating chuvas, but I, I think these are the main ones. As we said before, he left Egypt, went to Yerushalayim. He ended up in Sfas. He was part of that Chabura. He's spoken about with great reverence from the Beis Yosef. Um, he lived in, in Sfas, in that extraordinary Tkufa of where he had come out called Dele Yisrael. Um, but his Ica accomplishment, Ica work, was in Egypt. He basically had to navigate, he had to maneuver a community that was stuck somewhere in the Ramam's times and take it through a whole new change where the community was, was now becoming Balkarchach, it, it, it had to become part of a bigot Sibur. And the Radvaz's standing was such that it was able to do it. I mean, people resist change, and the Radvaz was so big and so chashev that they did it. And as strong as he was, he still was very, very much um, makpid, that whatever changes he makes, they should be b'der shalom. If very few things are worth it if you have to create uh, uh, tremendous machlokas in the community. So a lot of things he writes, that this, you know, they should do it, but it should be dafka b'der shalom, and, and, and so on. Um, ironically, he himself, because he stood up to people that were powerful and wealthy, was forced out of Yerushalayim because of it, and suffered a lot because of it, and he writes, you know, I, I thought I would finally be sitting al nucha and, you know, and uh, evil forces gathered against me, assumed that that's the story, but um, in, the, in, in, the, uh, in the history of Kali Yisrael, he goes down as somebody who was the Rav of Mitzrayim, the Sfarim write, that in Mitzrayim, the Allah is like Radvaz, even over the Rambam. The Rambam is no longer considered the murdered ass of, of Mitzrayim. From, after Radvaz, his Psalkim take the day. And, um, and, and incredible that, that some of the Psalkim that he writes became, and, and no one knew how to deal with Ethiopian Jews, with Karoyim. His Psalkim are the, are the um, foundation for any Psalkim about it. So the is, like we said, Kafal of Cheshvin, and Yehizah um, Baruch.